For KLSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Well, state lawmakers elect their new leaders during Organizational Day in the lead-up to the 2019 legislative session. Atoka Representative Charles McCall was re-elected as House Speaker, while Oklahoma City Senator Greg Treat was elected as President Pro Tem. Neva, what do you think of these leaders? Well, I think, uh, first of all, no surprise. Uh, we knew we knew uh, who, who would be leading both in the House and the Senate uh, this session. I think uh, Organization Day is always kind of that trigger point. Uh, the Constitution uh, dictates that they come in and formally make, uh, uh, make these uh, elections uh, known and also certify the results from, you know, the November elections. But I think, uh, I think we've got strong leadership teams in both the House and the Senate. And with the new incoming Republican governor, I think it sets up for a very interesting session. Ryan. Well, and I think you're seeing some efforts within the Republican caucus, especially in the House, to begin to uh, put some salve on the fractures that occurred during the last legislative session. There's the <clears throat> Excuse me. There's the formation of the platform caucus, only two of whom are coming back this legislative cycle, uh, this legislative session. As a result, uh, in large part, because you know folks didn't run for re-election, but then some others were targeted by nearly a million dollars in independent expenditures raised by leadership in the House Republican caucus. And so we've seen some rules come out of their caucus retreat saying that they've got a new rule that they're not going to target other members for uh, opposition during campaigns. They're not going to recruit candidates against members. We'll see how they enforce that or how that holds <laughs> up. But we, we've seen some of those platform members put in, the two returning put in prominent uh, committee chair positions, and I think that we're beginning to try to see this this kumbaya moment within the House Republican caucus as they walk back into the session. And I think it was interesting, too, the tone that was set in, in terms of uh, both Speaker McCall and the comments that he made, as well as uh, as well as well uh, Senate Pro Tem uh, Treat, I mean, talking about that, uh, that they would uh, work across uh, uh, political party lines and that there would be, I mean, really a, a tone that was uh, about doing what was best for, for all Oklahomans, and so I think I think it was not this hard partisan divide that we that we really saw, or any kind of shrill rhetoric. I think it was this overarching theme of it's time that we come together and do good things for the state of Oklahoma. And meanwhile, on the other side of that, for the first time in state history, both minority leaders are women, with Norman Representative Emily Virgin leading in the House and Oklahoma City Senator Kay Floyd leading in the Senate. Ryan, your thoughts on those two? Well, and if you dig a little deeper, you know, one of the things that we've seen, uh, one of the national narratives in Congress has been and they, uh, that growing diversity in Congress, in particular in the Democratic caucus, and we're starting to see that reflected in Oklahoma as well. So not only do we have at the leadership position with Senator Floyd and Representative Virgin leading their caucuses uh, in the Senate and the House, respectively, but the caucus chair in the House, uh, you, you've got uh, Cindy Munson, Representative Cindy Munson, Vice Chair is Monroe Nichols. You know, so you're, you're beginning to see women and minorities take really strong leadership positions within this caucus. I think it's, ex it's exciting. It's going to bring uh, some needed diversity of perspective to these important roles in the House. And I think that it's, it's really a harbinger of things to come for the way the Democratic caucus is going to uh, more better represent and better reflect the people of Oklahoma. And when you t and when you talk about women, uh, the House uh, uh, 
the House Caucus uh, chair is also a woman, a Representative Tammy West uh, out of the Northwest Oklahoma City Bethany area, and and so I think I think we are seeing this emerging strong uh, group of uh, women that are assuming uh, very significant uh, leadership positions. Some very quickly. I mean, uh, Representative so, West is only in her uh, second second term in office. So uh, Senator Kim David Kim uh, Bailey, yeah. is is going to be floor leader in the Senate. That is a huge position, one of the most powerful positions in, in the legislature. Uh, Republican, and uh, yet yet another female taking a leadership role in the legislature. It's exciting stuff. Also, during Tuesday's Organizational Day, state representatives passed rules governing the upcoming session, including a ban on recording videos by lawmakers on the House floor. Other controversial rules included allowing bills to progress without a Senate author and waiving the 48-hour notification on hearings. Ryan, your thoughts on these rules? Yeah, the, the ban on live streaming from the House floor, I really think that you know, we saw during the last legislative session, during the teacher walkout, a legislator kind of made a fool of himself with a live stream and you know paid some political uh, 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 price for that, uh, for, for that live stream. I think that they're trying, I think leadership is trying to protect members from themselves. I also think they're trying to protect uh, the, not only from the folks that are actually doing the live streaming from saying something in the heat of the moment, but getting a hot mic moment where you're live streaming and the person next to you says something. You know, frankly, if if you can't control yourself uh, and, and act with the kind of decorum that if it were picked up by a microphone on the House floor or on the Senate floor, maybe you shouldn't be there. Uh, yeah, I think that this rule really strikes in the face of the way that a lot of lawmakers at the federal, state, and local level are beginning to communicate directly to their constituents and giving their constituents a real a real on-the-ground view of what it's like to be there. But maybe the most troubling rule is this elimination of the 48-hour notice. You know, that, uh, as it plays out during the session, could have profound effects on the way that legislation moves and the, la- the, about, the amount of notice that not only legislators have, but maybe more importantly, the amount of notice that citizens have that a particular bill or a particular subject is going to come up for a vote and their opportunity to weigh in or be at the Capitol for that uh, for that bill. Neva. Well, on, on the issue of uh, being able to have this um, a notification issue, uh, I, th- I think you have to remember that they always had the opportunity to suspend, uh, suspend the rules and to uh, move something on a faster track. I mean, now what this does is basically give more power to the speaker uh, and in in that process but i think the other you know the other thing that was just mentioned in terms of uh, you know the videoing it's important to note that uh, that there is there are media uh, divisions in both the House and the Senate. There is uh, uh, the archived uh, uh, videos and, and audio of each and every session, of every comment made live on on debate on the floor and, and all that uh, ensues within both of those chambers. So they're not uh, negating uh, the, the public's ability to know what's going on. I think what may be more important in that process is they are, uh, they are developing a decorum and an ability to be able to conduct the business without this kind of gotcha mentality of people going uh, uh, kind of going rogue with the uh, uh, with the live streaming or the live Facebook or whatever it happened you know they happen to be using so I think the hour-long debate on the house side is somewhat indicative of that chamber and and the rancor that goes back and forth the Senate stream you know basically uh, went through and almost with no no debate uh, passed their rules so I think Treat's speech was longer exactly <laughs> Exactly. So I so I think I think you kind of see the the um, the kind of the character of both of those chambers, uh, you know, once again emerging. But bottom line 
is uh, we always see we always see some tweaks in the rules and the back and forth. Most of them are hammered out uh, by their respective caucuses long before they make the formal vote on it. And uh, uh, I don't think there were really any big surprises out of it as a takeaway. I did find it interesting though the the, the one where you you don't need a Senate author uh, because yeah. if you don't have a Senate author, really all you're you're it doesn't go anywhere. It's just going to sit in the House. You can pass it all the way through the House. But if without a Senate author, no one can pick it up in the other chamber. You know, so. and and I know that uh, you know that I'm, that's that's a revision of a rule. And if if I think back, you know, that rule itself that you have to have a Senate author isn't that old. Uh, you know, and I think that the autonomy. At, you know, I, I think that we should just have one chamber. I think we should eliminate either the Senate or the House and have a unicameral <laughs> legislature. But until we do that, I think that we should respect the autonomy of each chamber. Until and we do that. Okay. Until we do that, uh, <laughs> you know, we'd save a lot of money, uh, have fewer politicians yeah. and more voices. But, um, you know, that's that's another topic. But I, I think that, and so until we do that, we should respect the autonomy of the chambers. That one doesn't bother me as much. On Neva's point about the fact that they could always suspend the rules, that is absolutely right. But it required a vote and it was a two-thirds vote it was a it was a difficult hurdle and finally if i were still in the house and there aren't very many days that i still wish that i were in the house but <laughs> if i were still in the house i would live stream on day one and see what they did <laughs> there you go uh <clears throat> well hey the state of oklahoma is getting ready to welcome its new governor this coming weekend includes inaugural celebrations such as a family festival at the oklahoma aquarium in tulsa followed by a black bi- black tie ball in Tulsa later that evening. This all culminates in the inauguration on Monday, followed by the inaugural ball on Monday night. Neva, what do you think of the upcoming party? I think what we, uh, it's a it's a typical uh, inauguration yeah. series of events uh, throughout a weekend leading up to the inauguration uh, uh, next Monday, starting at 1130. And I think uh, Kevin Stitt is our 28th governor coming in. I mean, he is setting, uh, setting a, a, a a tone of trying to be inclusive. Uh, it actually starts uh, in Lawton with the pre-inaugural uh, uh, festivities down there that are very uh, uh, oriented to try to uh, you know bring in large groups of people, lower lower dollar costs. So you really have the gamut in terms of the Jinx event, uh, very family oriented, uh, foster families uh, uh, being encouraged to participate and, and being allowed to come in for free, um, and many of the uh, uh, I think uh, the designated uh, benefactors of uh, some of the money that will be raised will be some of those groups uh, in the Tulsa area. And that's a, that is an issue that clearly uh, the incoming first lady has said is something near and dear to her heart and that she will be very actively uh, involved in. And I think her advocacy certainly will elevate the whole uh, conversation in terms of uh, uh, foster families and uh, in, in Oklahoma. So I think, I think it is, uh, it, it's a naturally exciting time to see a transition in, in power, whether it's at the state level or at the, or at the national level. And, uh, it will be very interesting to see the, uh, the tone and some of the specifics that, uh, Kevin Stitt, uh, uh, outlines, uh, in his inaugural address, uh, Monday afternoon. All right. Yeah. And I think that that's right. It's, you know, it's the honeymoon and this is, this is what we're going to go through. I, yeah, I, I have an app on my phone that pops up old uh, photograph memories and it, it's probably tracking all sorts of things uh, but 
Yeah, it, uh, it, as it's been popping up over the last week, I'm beginning all these photos of uh, the inauguration of Brad Henry, and, you know, from, I think it was, what, we're like 12 years ago right now? So, uh, you know, it's quite, mm-hmm. a, quite a ways back from like the last one of those. Oh, and, the second, and, second Yeah, the second okay, inaugural with, uh, yeah. you, know, you know, and so, you know, seeing all of that stuff, you know, it is, and it's an, it's an exciting time for the state. And, you know, if you think about the outgoing administration, you know, we had a, at the ACLU, we had an open records request that was uh, one year and 11 months old that Governor Fallon just responded to so it's like they're cleaning out their drawers <laughs> and saying well we might as well get that done so I mean it's, it's an exciting time it's an exciting time for the state and uh, the the inaugural dress on, on Monday is when the real work begins not that there has been work going on but it's really that's going to set the tone because up until now uh, I don't think that we've seen a real concrete idea of what Governor Stitt or Governor-elect Stitt hopes to see come out of this legislative session. We've seen some you know, larger overarching goals, but we haven't really seen any sort of details yet. And, and I think and, we and won't so, see a lot of detail, perhaps, in the inaugural address. I think that will be for the state of the state. state uh, yeah. Yeah, but I think uh, I think what we will see is, again, this expanding vision of how he really uh, in, uh, sees himself as governor of the state of Oklahoma. I think some of the things that he certainly put in place as recently as just this past week with the, uh, the concept of a chief operating officer, someone who's going to be cabinet level that really is going to be tasked with uh, uh, with really achieving some real accountability out of these state agency heads and directors. And he continues to advocate for wanting to be a governor who can hire and fire those uh, folks. And that's going to be, I think, one of his chief, uh, uh, chief priorities in trying to accomplish uh, during this legislative session. And we'll see how, you know, how both the lawmakers as well as the public respond to that. And that's going to be, I think, one of the more interesting dynamics this legislative session is that in a one-party state where you may have basic agreement from the Republican caucus and the Senate and the House and Governor Stitt, um, you know, there is going to be, I think, a, a more internal conversation and, and perhaps debate over executive power, over who is going to drive this train. For the last eight years, it's been Republicans in the legislature that drove the train, and Governor Fallon was largely just on board for the ride. And uh, unfortunately for her, ended up getting blamed for a lot of the bad stuff that did or didn't happen. But you know, the, the legislature drove the train, and I think Governor Stitt is coming in with an idea as an executive, as a manager. He wants to have a lot more control over the way the state operates. And I think that even though uh, we're seeing some uh, uh, some talk out of the legislature about greater transparency and accountability, who actually holds that power, whether it's the executive or the legislature, that's going to be an interesting debate that happens this session. Well, and I think you have a guy who ran for governor intending to be a change maker. I mean, he, he didn't uh, basically uh, move out of a very... Uh, a very prominent and successful business position and move into the political arena uh, wanting to just be a placeholder. I mean, I think he's made it pretty clear across the board and in conversations, uh, uh, certainly through this transition period uh, with the folks that have been involved, that uh, that it's time to really mix things up. It's time to really deal with these issues. Quit talking about them, but let's figure out how to fix them. And I think the public will be very, very receptive and very positive on that. Uh, uh, and the proof will be in what uh, you know what transpires and being able to work together with these lawmakers and others uh, to to achieve some real successes. Epic Charter School is getting nearly thirty nine million dollars from the state after a boost in enrollment for the virtual school. In fact, twelve charter schools, including four virtual schools, made the top twenty list of institution 
getting more money. Meanwhile, two of the biggest public schools, Oklahoma City and Tulsa, are getting their funding cut by more than $2 million each. Ryan, what do you think about these mid-year adjustments? Well, I think that the mid-year adjustments, I mean, this is something that typically happens. And, and, and the good news is, is that because of the new revenue streams that are coming into the state, uh, as a result of the budget deal that happened during the last legislative session, <clears throat> these mid-year adjustments don't mean that a lot of schools are, even schools that are getting increases, are getting letters from the state saying we can't do that. You know, so this is this is a good year in terms of you know if you're if you're due additional money, you're probably going to get that additional money. We're not seeing some cuts across the board because of these mid year mid year adjustments. The I I think that the one thing that's going to come out of this is increased scrutiny on these charter schools and in particular on online charter schools. Uh, there is uh, I think a real bipartisan. Uh, appetite to make sure that the enrollment, you know, the people that are showing up or are people, are they actually completing the school years? There's a lot of transparency and accountability, accountability issues that have been addressed by the legislature over the last couple of years. And I think that this year, in particular with these kind of numbers, uh, you're going to see the legislature begin to act. And, and the way that charter schools are administered and overseen by the state of Oklahoma will probably change this session. Neva. And I would agree. I mean, based on even many of the pre-file bills, right. I mean, there's every indication that this is going to be a topic that's going to be front and center. And I think the I think the issue when you really look at not only Oklahoma City and Tulsa, but the other three in the top five schools that uh, uh, that had the biggest that were the biggest losers in terms of, of the funding were uh, were Broken Arrow, Owasso, and more. So you take those five school districts, five of the largest in the state, and then you look at these increases that are very dramatic in terms of the numbers uh, with the uh, with the charter schools, virtual schools. I think I think uh, coming to terms with what that looks like long term and as Ryan says and the accountability piece and the structural pieces that uh, you know now have to really I think everyone has to pause and and say we've really got to take a serious look at and I do think it's a I think this is a bipartisan issue because it's an education issue it's an Oklahoma issue because it deals with every kid and what we do in terms of giving them the quality education they deserve and when you're talking about these cuts in enrollment uh, Oklahoma City's new superintendent has basically said it's time to start closing some schools it's time so when you say look some of these schools they don't even have the number of students that takes to fill these when you get these kinds of numbers does it just more impetus to to the superintendent to say it's time to close these or schools. It may, or it may be a time to think outside the box. Perhaps some of these larger school districts need to look at uh, becoming two school districts and not just one school district. That is, that is in terms of numbers, uh, proven time and time again that they can't get their wrap their uh, you know heads around being able to efficiently deal with it in terms of cost, numbers of you know numbers of students, buildings, teachers, all that it encompasses. And so I think uh, I think they have a climate now in an environment where there would be a lot of support for some serious look at what can we do differently and better. And, um, you know, I think the challenge, particularly in these larger school districts, is you need to start thinking about doing it as quickly as possible. And I think that if you look at, like Neva said, the, the pre-bill filings that we've seen on charter schools, one of the thing that one of the things that legislators are struggling with right now is that they don't have a full grasp on, you know, what these charter school enrollment numbers actually look like, and and what their performance looks like, and that you know the things that we have grown accustomed to trying to measure, maybe Oklahoma City Public Schools or Owasso or Broken Air, the things that we measure them on 
number of students that are there every day that complete the semester and how they do uh, over the course of several years in that school district, that information, as imperfect as, and incomplete as that is, I think lawmakers feel is a much better picture than what they're getting coming out of charter schools right now. Well, and when you look at some of these districts, and oftentimes, again, in these larger school districts, I mean, the number of kids that are bounced out of these districts and where do they land? And is this the logical place that they do land? And, you know, trying to trying to see where the real streamlining, not only streamlining is, but where the the ability to really garner information on both sides of that, both both sides of that attendance process is very is very difficult right now because they don't really have the structure the matrix and the you know and the uh, uh, kind of the internal workings set up to really do that and I think that's where the State Department and everyone have to get on board about working together not trying to kind of divide and conquer you know and uh, not work well with each other which historically has been one of our biggest problems so you think it won't be as much of a hands-off it's always been kind of a hands-off of, of on the charter schools from state lawmakers do you think this time it's going to be we actually need to figure out what's going I, on I think I think it's I think I think they're going to take a, a hard look at everything and this will be one you know one aspect that will not be you know not be set aside and kind of you know separated out I think everything's going to be on the table and hopefully that will be the case Outgoing Lieutenant Governor Todd Lamb is heading into the private sector. The Oklahoman reported earlier this week Lamb will take a position as Chief Development Officer for Tricor. The company specializes in cybersecurity and has operations in 10 states. Neva, it's not surprising to see the former Security Sec- Secret Service agent <laughs> staying in the security field. That's right. And I think, uh, you know, here uh, Todd Lamb, who was in the state Senate and two terms as lieutenant governor, and now the day after he leaves office, uh, he, he's back in the private sector in a, in a very significant uh, uh, role within uh, this, uh, you know, this private company. And I think well-suited. I mean, by, by every estimation, uh, not only by the folks that hired him and, and the things, very complimentary things that they said, but... But, I mean, here's someone, the 12 states, the District of Columbia that they operate in, uh, they're a very high-tech, uh, very successful uh, uh, company that uh, really, I mean, in terms of his skill set, I mean, it looks like it's a, it's kind of the, the perfect match. And, uh, you know, I certainly uh, wish uh, Lieutenant Governor Lamb, as he leaves office, uh, great success in, uh, in his uh uh, in his work in private, you know, private enterprise, and uh, thank him for his years of public service because he's been an exemplary public servant. Right. Well, and it keeps him in Oklahoma City. I think that you know he's he's young. He has, uh, I think, uh, some political aspirations ahead of him. You know, so where he was going to ultimately land, I think, was going to give some sense of where he thought that political operation may be in the future. I, I I sincerely doubt that his days of running for office are over. I don't know what that is, but I mean, he's somebody who obviously you know, likes public service. Service and and has an affinity for running for uh, office and so you know for him to be in the Oklahoma City area uh, you know that that tells us where his base of political operations are going to be in the future and this is just something we're seeing you know this you know we we've seen folks that have been in these offices for a while they're coming out they're going into the private sector I was uh, down at the Devon cafeteria the other day eating lunch and uh, ran into my my old friend Ken Miller who I served with in the legislature went on to become state treasurer and said what, what are you doing what do you and he said well I'm a businessman now I'm, I'm a company man he's working at OG&E now yeah. and so all these folks that mm-hmm. have held these positions in particular statewide positions transitioning out going into the private sector and you know I think uh, 
uh, for the most part, when we see that they're bringing a, an enormous amount of skill set to these private to private industry. And I think that you know there is some concern about you know how does their influence uh, stay over, and you know should there be cooling off periods? No, those are interesting conversations. But you know, all in all, with you know what I'm seeing right now, I'm I'm, I'm grateful that uh, these folks have you know found some good jobs and going to be able to keep paying their mortgages. Yeah, and Todd Lamb's not going in as like a legislative liaison. Yeah. He's going as, as a as chief development officer, so he's taking his skill set. And he's actually going away completely. Well, and clearly, away and yeah. clearly, if they're in 12 states and uh, and D.C., I mean, they've got a lot of other opportunities in yeah. many other states. Uh, and 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 let's uh, look at it from this standpoint also, from the private sector standpoint. Here's someone who has had an opportunity to know a lot of folks in a lot of states, uh, right. in, in the business communities, uh, certainly because as lieutenant governor, he was very proactive in terms of, you know, bringing, you know, uh, looking to bring business and industry into the state. So he's got... Uh, he's got a real leg up over a lot of folks in terms of just that uh, that wealth of information and contacts that he has across the country that uh, that will bode well for him in this job. And as you say, Ryan, here's, he he elected to stay in the state. His kids are still in school. Uh, he wants to see them, you know, complete their education here. Uh, it gives him an opportunity to uh, continue to do things, uh, you know, in terms of family and church and other, you know, related activities that he cares about. And so, uh, you know, as as we see these people, you know, kind of make this uh, transition from uh, from the public sector to the private sector, it's fascinating to see where they land. Yeah, and you know, and, you know tr- uh, historically, if we look at folks, I mean, some you know, take the the Fred Harris model and you know, just totally uh, absconded. <laughs> moved, moved Albuquerque moved, and become yeah, moved, a University of New Mexico yeah, professor, uh, or, the, or they stick around the state. And so, I mean, I think that it it is interesting to see what are those first steps when they leave office. And like you said, you know, the, uh, especially these statewide elected officials, they walk out with a Rolodex. Uh, uh, and, and if you're, you don't know what a Rolodex is and you're listening, <laughs> <laughs> Google it. Uh, they leave with a Rolodex that, uh, that is, you know, you know, second to none. And it's difficult to replicate that anywhere else. And one of the most important things, if you're a company and you're hiring these people that have names that people recognize, you get doors opened. Yeah. And that's, that's a big, big advantage to you if you're hiring one of these folks. Ryan's and Nevis comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.